Hello and welcome to Dear Gardener, with me Ben Dark. This is the podcast that takes the experiences and stories of gardeners around the world and weaves them together into audio brocade. Before I introduce the gardeners, I must say a huge, huge thank you to Hilary, Melanie and Emma, who supported the show on Ko-Fi this week. A vote of confidence in the podcast. I should use the contributions for paying my hosting costs, but instead I have bought a really interesting looking book about medieval manuscripts. Given the nature of these things, I'm sure whatever I read will eventually work its way back into the podcast, even if it is by means oblique and obscure. So hopefully those contributors will find themselves repaid for their generosity in some year in the late 2020s with an anecdote about a monk. And speaking of the late 2020s, what will our guests be up to in that distant future? I suspect that Brandon will be beginning to be towered over by the native arboretum he is planting in northern Kentucky. He mentioned that his espaliered pomegranate was putting on five foot in a single year. So they've obviously got good soil over there. All of the buckeyes and the native oaks that he's putting in will no doubt be massive by then. Charlotte, the second guest, will no doubt be taking a break from winning medals on the main avenue at Chelsea. Instead, focusing on an ever-expanding studio, sucking the greatest and best designers out of the rest of the horticultural world. And finally, Rob, the domestic gardener in this week's episode, will be waiting for the floodwaters to recede and the River Severn to leave his garden, as it does every year creeping out to clear the silt and inspect his ever-increasing array of wildlife ponds. They're a very good group today, and they are going to go far. All of them have things worth investigating beyond this podcast, so in the description below I'll put a link to Brandon's website where you can find quite a few interesting bits and pieces, but most importantly his thesis on plant sociability matrices, which is certainly worth reading and is free to download. I'll put a link to Charlotte's design studio. She does really, really wonderful work and mentioned to me in the chat that she has about an hour and a half's driving radius from Bristol in which she takes on work. But it's nationwide quality stuff, maybe international stuff. So I'm sure she'll be open to to travel tickets and and bribes to, to work further afield. And finally, I'll put a link to the two festivals that Rob is involved in running. The 2000 Trees Festival, which he owns, and the obscure Left Field Metal Festival, in which he's heavily involved down in the West Country. I'll be back at the end of this episode to talk about snow and winter sunshine. Until then, take it away, dear gardeners. Times are getting tough and the folks are cutting down. They even decide to do their own gardening. Their own gardening. Take my advice and knock off for a while. The happiness boys are on a rampage. 
Fred has helped me to start a small Pelagonian nursery, yes. Hello. Hey, it's good to see you. Good to see you too. Hello. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? Yes, I'm doing very, very well. Hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly, really clearly as well. It's wonderful to get a chance to talk to you. Sorry, it's taken a while to pin me down. Anyway, great to see you and thank you for agreeing to talk to me. Likewise, I'm always looking for someone to talk to me about my garden. When I'm out in my front garden, like just talking to strangers walking past, going, yeah, yeah, come and talk to me about stuff. And they do stop. Yeah, people are nice. They compliment you and go, that looks really nice. It's like, oh, thanks. So now I've started doing that to strangers as I walk past them in their garden, telling them how lovely it is, because then people get that people care. Who's the dog? His name's Apollo. I got him five days ago, so he's very new. He'll be quiet, but I might have to tell him to sit a few times, so just to warn you, you can see him. <laughs> Hello, Apollo. Hello. Hopefully he'll just lay down. He has a lot of energy in the morning, especially after a walk. And I just walked him, so. Okay. I've got a, a two, soon to be three-year-old son and his little teddy, his little rabbit he sleeps with is called Apollo. It's oh, a good that's name. that's so cute. I love the name. I think it's such a great name. You might have guessed, actually, by the way, that we're, we're into the conversation now. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thanks for the heads up. Just before we start, I just introduce you. Nelly, come and have a look. Say Hello, hi. Nelly. Hi. <laughs> Gosh, she's gorgeous. <laughs> we Hello. might get interrupted now and again by her, but I'm giving her treats when she goes onto her bed. So let's just give her another one. On your bed. On your bed. Good girl. Go on, on your bed. Well Ready? done, Nelly. Bye-bye. Well so currently... I am the horticulture extension agent for the University of Kentucky in my county, Kenton County. So basically my role is to do outreach and education in kind of whatever way I feel is best to serve the health and well-being through horticulture of the people of the county. So I have a lot of freedom to kind of pursue what I want to teach and focus on. We have a three and a half acre site and it's almost all turf since I've been here a year I've already made like two meadows. I've started an arboretum. So it's like, it's been a lot of fun and it's taught me so much. I can tell you some of the cool things. So this year we solarized two 2000 square foot plots of turf for meadow. We planted just a month ago, a 600 foot long hedgerow of native plants planted over, I think a hundred species of trees and woody shrubs this year. We've just gone crazy. It's been great though, because I've gotten two grants and I've just ran with it. So it's a really beautiful view. Have you, have you ever been to Shrewsbury Bend? No, I don't think I have. So the River Severn runs around like a horseshoe round. Yes, I have been to Shrewsbury. Of course I have. Yes, with the lovely castle. And the, yeah, yeah, so from the castle, you, know, you can see a weir. You can see my house from the castle, actually. There's a weir, and I, I live maybe 100 yards down from the weir there. So you basically get to look out, and we've just missed it, but then the, the salmon are running up the river, and, um, you know, it's a really beautiful. My house is about maybe 50 foot above the river. 
so I've got three tiers. So that when it comes out the house, um, three meters of a little terrace, I guess, a decked terrace, which has got a uh, planter in and some clematis. And then you've got, there's another decked terrace, but then it gets down to the bottom, which is the biggest part of it. It's maybe about 12 meters long or something like that. It's not, not a huge garden, but it floods. Wow. Okay. Every, every year, reliable. Every year without fail normally about february it can flood before that but it'll come in it'll just kind of like come in kiss the garden and then go back out again but in february it often comes in for maybe a couple of weeks so that has proved some unique challenges for the planting down there i think that's probably quite good particularly in the design work that you've got nelly to force you out of the house you can't just you can't just stare at your um what is it? What what program do you use to do your designing on? Well, I do it all by hand. Really? Yeah. So it's on a drawing board. So I'm a bit old school, really. You're incredibly um, old school. <laughs> thanks. Wow. <laughs> it's just the way that I was trained because I've studied fine art. That's that's more natural to me. Although I've you know worked on computers for as long as I can remember. I love drawing. Your clients must love it as well, to have a fine artist working on their plants. They end up framed on the walls of their houses. Well, I do give them an A4 version because they look really pretty. Obviously, they look great when they're massive, but when they're small, they just look so detailed. It is like a piece of artwork at the end of the day. I'm building this because who knows if I'll be there in 30 years, but I'm hoping in 30 years time, this could be an amazing education space. The whole feature it's not to just have an arboretum of any particular species. It's really of the native species local to this particular ecoregion. It's difficult, at least around here locally, there's not a lot of arboretums or places that feature native plants. And that's just something I really want to share. That sounds wonderful. Just going back to when you were initially talking about what you're doing, you said solarized. What, what do you mean? I haven't heard Oh yeah, or oculation. It's the idea of the or process of using heavy black plastic to kill grass. Okay. I wanted to take that approach instead of glyphosate, which, you know, the drawbacks to each approach. And I respect people who take each approach, but I wanted to do the black plastic way because I knew based on the thickness of it, I could get another life out of it. And it worked pretty well. I got to say the first time I lifted it up, some weeds came back. So I was trying to kill the weed seed bank. Right. And so then I put it back down in midsummer took it back off. And so I hope doing at least two cycles, I killed most of the weeds and uh, we'll see. This is my first time doing a meadow by seed. So I'm excited, but also pretty nervous to see what the weeds will be like. Amazing. What's yeah. in what's in the mix? Basically what I did was there's an amazing company in Kentucky called Roundstone Native Seed. And they have, I think, hundreds of different native seeds that you can buy mixes of for different Southern, Northern sites. But I made a custom blend with them of ones just to our region of Kentucky, at least that I tried to based on research. So I made a short grass metal blend of grass and forbs that are three to four feet tall. And then I did one that was more like seven to eight. I know over time they're going to mix because of the pollination and seeding. But at the moment, I'm hoping there's pretty good distinction between the two meadows that are next to each other. So that was kind of the plan is get wow. as many natives in there as possible. Again, to showcase what we have growing in the state. And what are your forbs, your flowering plants? Oh, so many. So of course we have Monarda, Echinacea, Rudbeckia, tons of Asclepias, little blue stem, big blue stem. Blue stem grass. Yeah, Schizocarium, Scoparium, with Panicum, their switchgrass. In North America, we are so blessed with so many amazing prairie species. And I know I see them in all over the world, which is great. In total, there's probably about 
40, 50 different species in both, I think. Wow. So. And will we be able to now go to the company and buy the Brandon? George mix. I mean, I share it with anybody who wants it. So I've been giving out like the recipe to people, but yeah, uh, roundstone native seed. Um, I don't know if they ship internationally, but they definitely ship in the U S all over and they already have blends made, but I feel like I wish they would almost call this like the Kentucky blend. I've been here seven years now, almost to the day. And I spent the first couple of years wrestling with the garden in terms of trying to neaten it and tidy it up. And I'm now in a period of going back the other way and trying to loosen my grip on it. So I don't have to feel like I'm pruning every three seconds to make everything neater. Trying to walk myself down a path of enjoying it more rather than spending all my time doing stuff in it, sitting in it and enjoying it rather than always having to make it perfect. From right at the very top of my house, we've got like a really tall house. And then it's 50 foot down to the garden. You can sit. It's like a bird's eye view and you can look at your garden and you can plan it out, which I really liked. So I took everything out and I took the lawn out and I relayed the lawn and planned the journey through it. And then went, right, now I need some plants. <laughs> I grew up with a lawn and playing football and I've got a four and six year old girls and they didn't care about the lawn, it turns out. They're not kicking balls around. They're actually pretending to be fairies and hiding around. And actually that plays into the stuff that I want to, I kind of want to be really surrounded quite closely by nature as you, as you go in and, and actually have things feel abundant. That's how I've moved actually over the last four or five years, rather than trying to make things perfect. So you mentioned your training. That's how you were trained. What was your training? I worked basically at the... Botanical Gardens in Bristol, not work, so I studied at the Botanical Gardens in Bristol. It's called the Garden Design School. It's run by Robin Williams. I guess his style is the more traditional style as well. So following his footsteps, his design style was all by hand. And I do think that's really important because when you're starting off a design, being able to use a pencil freehand to, to get the uh, initial shapes is really important. I think if you're like stuck to a screen, it's quite hard to be fully creative. Yes, the curves they give you aren't quite as curvaceous as they can be from <laughs> your own pen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even I do use SketchUp for the small things and I can use it, but I think even then I would still get the design right and then get it scanned and put into something like SketchUp. I was reading something as an architect, actually just yesterday and it was a throwaway comment but saying that there was really a need for a study on how software and different software programs have influenced architectural design because there are certain things that you can do very easily on certain programs i think they use is it zenda or something like that and mm. there's a way of extrapolating a curve and you're starting to see it now in the high spec museum buildings like oh they've used that tool and mm. actually this software developer's little bit of code is influencing the built environment around us i'm sure you could do the same thing for a study of gardens the influence Definitely. Definitely. sketch up on British garden design. What is in that native hedge you planted? Oh, okay. I'll do common names and some botanical names, but hornbeam, many viburnums, I think four viburnums, four of the native ruses. So Rus copalina, Rus, oh, sorry, staghorn sumac, smooth sumac, flame leaf sumac, a uh, bunch of sumacs. What else? Do they all do the autumn color? I only know a few. Oh, of brilliantly, brilliantly. They're stunning. They have brilliant fall color. I love Roos. I, I emphasize it all the time. We also have 
a bunch of native cornice. We have Lindira benzoa on our native spice bush, Aeschylus, our native bottle brush buckeye, brilliant in shade. Oh, and of course, our one of my other favorites, Sambucus canadensis, our native elderberry, not nigra, which I also love, but we used canadensis. So yeah, five plants of each. So they're kind of in blocks, but I didn't put like all the roots together. I broke them up. The idea of a hedgerow in the United States is such a foreign concept. I have to be honest, Ben. When I lived in England, it was like such a common thing. And I was like, this is brilliant. Why don't we do it here? But fence hedgerows are not a thing in the US. Unfortunately, people don't really see the value in them. I love it. And part of it was to hide privacy of our border with a private property. But also it was to, again, introduce people to, hey, what hedges do well here that naturalize and provide tons of food for wildlife. So. At the end of the garden, there's a really big, beautiful willow tree, which is kind of like the focal point which draws you down. It's kind of like a little hidden area down underneath it. You can't really see it from the riverside. can't really see it from the house either. So you can kind of have this little secret area down that's lovely. That's gorgeous. And it's a proper riverside weeping willow, is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the flood thing was, it comes in and it makes a mess and drops loads of silt. And if you've mulched or you've done something, it takes a load of it with it as well. But it also cleans up your leaves and stuff like that. But the interesting thing about it is it floods. So you'd think it was a wet garden, but it's not because it's got huge hedges. It's got a massive willow tree down at the other end. And so it's got quite a lot of trees around it so it's really dry it's getting sucked up and how do the plants survive their two weeks under the water their perennials are just tucked up and fine are they yeah so it's it's mostly perennials so lots of hostas and brunera and um dicentra and stuff like that that sounds pretty yeah yeah it's really nice and the geraniums like those sort of woodland geraniums don't seem to care whatever you do to them and there's like kookara and because it's quite shady with the willow and the, and the trees. So those shady plants like it. And the ones that die off for the winter don't care. They don't seem to be bothered by the compaction of it. I mean, the lawn hates it. I spend all spring forking the lawn to try and get some air into it. I spent a lot of time planting lavender when I first got there, which would die immediately. And the roses don't seem to care. They just sit there and carry on. Um some of the shrubs don't seem to mind. Like I've got a Philadelphus and a Viburnum, they're happy. My feeling is by looking around at other people's gardens is it takes them a little bit longer to, to start in the spring. Everything else is out before my gardens is out. That's part of the beauty really is, is gardens are always ever evolving, aren't they? So it's nice to see them grow. They are. Do you find that hard to explain to clients? You've sold them this wonderful vision and then they look at the garden and they've got little tiny sprouts of green in a big <laughs> brown sea. Yeah. Or it's winter and it's literally like a stick in a pot. <laughs> I'm like, honestly, it will look great. Just like right now. I promise you there's a plant in that pot. We have paid for something. All it takes really is is one year and then they'll see. I'm sure. So how long have, how long have you been out on your own as a garden designer? Um, since 2017, I built my own business. I freelanced for a while with a company in Bristol called Eden Garden Designs. That's how I originally started out. I left studying and they teach you how to be a designer, you know, how to set up your business, get all your typefaces and your logo and, and get your business cards created. And then 
you do that and you just wait for the phone to ring and and nobody calls <laughs> so um the easiest way into it was was to work for a, a company to start off with and actually it was a great experience because it meant that i could have a lot of freedom to manage my own builds and and i was allowed to be very creative and go with my own style but also having somebody there like a mentor to guide me in the right direction as well and and sort of maybe also push me a bit further than I might have pushed myself if I was just working on my own. It was a really good way to start. But as time's gone on, sort of in the last few years, I felt very comfortable in my own, you know, ability, in my own style. I did plant as a fun experiment. So we have this south-facing brick wall, which is kind of surrounded by a courtyard almost very sheltered. And so a pomegranate, I planted espeliade. I've never seen a pomegranate espeliade before. And I used a cultivar called, I think Russian 26, which is supposed to be the hardiest one. And it put on five feet of growth in one year. It was unbelievable. So that is a plant I'm experimenting with to see it, see if it survives before I even accession it. This will be its first winter. It looks great so far. So we'll see how it does that. I'm excited about maybe more than anything else in the Arboretum at the moment. I'm with you. I love pomegranate. It's one of my favorite plants, even for the cold climate, even if you're not going to get the fruit, just for those flowers. They're so beautiful. Have you ever seen the white ones? No. Oh my God. When I lived in Jerusalem, there was this house that had the white ones. And oh my gosh, it's like this white globe. It's, it looks like a Christmas ornament. It was so beautiful. Yeah, that was cool. Wow. Okay. I didn't realize it's the fruit that's white. I thought you were talking yeah. about a white flower. Wow. Mm -hmm. The fruit is that, white. It's beautiful. That's really, really special. I'll have to look out for that. Yeah. Would you like to talk a little bit about what you were doing over in Israel? Yeah, absolutely. So back in 2018, I sorry, 2017, I was wrapping up my two years as a professional horticulture student at Longwood Gardens. And I knew at that point, I was like, all right, if I'm going to do one more internship before I have to like really start working, I was like, this is the one. I had my eye on this internship for years. I found out about it by, by a good friend, James McGrath, who uh, he had done it previously and he had told me about it. The charity is called Friends of the Jerusalem Botanical Garden and the garden is called the Jerusalem Botanical Garden. And anyways, the internship's open to, it's a UK charity that sponsors the students and um, from students all over the world. But anyways, my time there, six months, I started January, 2018, ended very end of June, 2018. And the primary focus of it is you're there to support the propagation department of the nursery. So what you're doing is you're propagating a lot of rare indigenous or endemic plants to Israel, especially ones on the red list. And also you go out in the wild and collect seeds all throughout the Negev desert. And um, yeah, it's, wow. it's a really cool garden. What were you hunting for in the Negev desert? We were always hunting Onycleus irises, which are these big, brilliant, like beautiful like inky black purple irises. They're so gorgeous. And you see them, they're like a jewel. So I remember on weekends, uh, a friend of mine, we would go out in the desert where like Ori, the scientific director would be like, hey, these are blooming right now, go look for them. So we would, and it was like a treasure hunt. So Onycleus irises were a big one. And, oh, there was a few salvia species that were apparently extinct in the wild, but we had them in cultivation. And they have a few bee orchids there. So I remember a few times getting to see some of those orchids that mimic bees and they're kind of with their look. So that was really cool. So, oh, and hi, in the bulbs, how could I miss seeing wild narcissus tulips and also hyacinth bulbs? I had never seen them wild before. And to see how they grow in a desert environment makes you realize that 
they're like so babied in our climate. They have it so easy there. They have to survive without water for like nine months. I think it's amazing how adapted they are. I did not realize Narcissus could tolerate such drought for such a long period. I was amazed. For Father's Day, my daughter's bought me a, a wildlife in your garden book and it ties in with my sense that I should be less stringent on my pruning and, and calm down. The flood brings in a lot of stuff with it. We have absolutely random things growing everywhere. There's a lot of uh, self-seeded ferns and stuff that have just popped up from nowhere. So that kind of really helps with that encroachment of nature onto your onto your pathways and stuff. And they've just inserted themselves in the tiniest little nooks and cracks. They're what I would call a sacrificial plants that the kids used to make potions and, and stuff like that. But yeah, for the wildlife, I've just put two little micro ponds in because I basically, so I want some frogs to eat all the slugs, which eat my hostas um, immediately upon them coming out. The biggest one is only a meter long. Another one is just a bucket, which I'm going to put some plants in it, but I thought I'd wait till spring to do that because I didn't know. I'm not in sh entirely sure and you can't really Google this very well either, how ponds behave in a floodplain. Well, I was just thinking that, whether they'll be stripped of all their plants. I imagine they would be, particularly that shallow. And it's not as if you have rising water on a farm where it stays still. You're going to have slight currents and eddies and running water running through your garden as well. Because, because of the massive hedge that I've got, it does create a lot of sh uh, shelter from the point of view of flow. Have you ever had a flood in your house and it kind of just rises and then walks its way across? It just kind of sits there and you get some waves a little bit, but it's not, it doesn't really pull much and it leaves really slowly as well. So it just sinks back. There's no draw on it. Uh, I think it will be okay as long as I tie them down. Are you going to expand into one of these vast practices with teams of gardens being built and people working for you? I think I'd like to do that. That probably is the ultimate goal. It must be quite a difficult transition from going from being one person to then paying another person and hopefully getting twice as much work, <laughs> which probably doesn't happen. I think for me, the next sort of big thing would be doing a show garden. I'd love to do a show garden. I worked for Gardener's World a few years ago. I was a horticultural assistant and runner for them. And so being sort of behind the scenes with a lot of those shows sort of gave me a bit of insight into it. I've always loved the shows anyway. I always go to the RHS shows every year. And this year helped at Hampton Court with a designer called Pollyanna Wilkinson. And that was just a great experience. But it did make me realise that I probably could just do it. <laughs> rather than help. <laughs> I bet you could. I'm so glad that you like show gardens because I like show gardens too and they get a lot of stick, particularly Chelsea. It's <laughs> not real gardening. and well, Of course it's not real gardening, but it's it's theatre. It's, it's it Exactly, fun. yeah. You yeah. couldn't have the gardens. I mean, you could have like the structure of the gardens. You could have the hard landscaping and you could have the plants, but you'd have to reduce it by about like 60%. <laughs> But there's still a lot to take from it. They always give out a plant list. So even if you can't have that exact garden, there's a lot of inspiration to be taken from them. Would you start at Chelsea or would you go for, for a Hampton Court? I think Malvern is actually quite a good one to start just because it's a bit smaller and it sort of gives you the experience of actually working with a sponsor and the actual process of building it, but also planning it. Just an understanding of how much time it's going to take would be um 
good to work out on a smaller scale in terms of taking time off work to do it. We'll come and see your garden, do a live recording there. <laughs> yes, I'll let you know. They're also the most fun in terms of just the camaraderie and meeting people from the industry. Yeah. And everyone's doing slogging long days and going to the pub with people from the other gardens and sharing ideas. It's great. Lending each other forklift trucks. And, um... <laughs> there is. Yeah. I mean, there's an amazing atmosphere in the lead up to it. There's like a real buzz and everyone is rushing around and everyone's very excited. And, and in the same way with having sort of colleagues around, there were designers that were maybe less experienced coming over to the more experienced designers and just saying, can you just come and have a look and just tell me what you think and give some feedback? Everyone's just there to sort of enjoy. It. Obviously, it is a competition, but everyone's just so helpful and everyone wants to help each other, which is really nice. It is a competition in terms of, say, Chelsea, best in show and people's choice but otherwise it's not it's about excellence according to the judges criteria so everyone can get gold or all of you can get silver and you don't lose out in the podium positions by helping someone square their corners or, yeah. or trim the bark which is really nice and does lend to a collaborative <laughs> feel to it yeah yeah it is nice and it also means that you don't feel like with the big wigs the people who are well known in the industry they're not always gonna win over the newbies there's still space for for newcomers which I think is it's really encouraging and as you probably know horticulture it is more popular probably than it was a few years ago but we still need more people in horticulture especially more young people so if it's on the tv and people get inspired by something they see or they go to the show then you know that's that's fantastic isn't it I'd like to hear a little bit about Longwood Gardens because it's a place that looms large in American horticulture, but some of the international listeners to this won't really know about Longwood Gardens, and I include myself in that. Longwood Gardens is, how do I describe it? It's a force to be reckoned with in horticulture. It is an extremely well-funded public garden. It takes on a lot of different parts of horticulture and it's not only an education garden, but it's truly a display garden. It is there for public display. It is immaculate. I mean, the standards at Longwood Gardens are set so high for display, for plant health. It's kind of overwhelming. It's just such a force. Um, it's a little bit like Versailles. It's so grand and opulent in some ways with their fountain gardens and displays, but they have a little bit of everything. They do provide education for a select group of gardeners and interns every year. And I think for a lot of people and myself included, it's like when Harry went to Hogwarts, it's like, you feel for the first time you're with like like-minded people, your age. And for me, that was incredible. I was with a cohort of 10 other horticulturists in my group for two years. And when you're with 10 students for two years and you kind of do everything together, you become really close and it's just amazing to have that experience. It's pretty unique in horticulture to have that. My favorite part of the garden is the, I think it's a 90 acre meadow garden. So it's all naturalized meadows and there's a barn on this hill and it's just beautiful. In fact, in the evenings, that's where I'd go at that golden hour to like unwind. The cool thing is when the garden closes to the public, the students kind of like have it to themselves. So it's just amazing. The meadow was where to be. I think at that time of day, it was just beautiful. So you would you'd get to experience a lot of that on your own time without visitors to interrupt you, which was really great. I'm a commercial furniture designer, so I'm like 
MS John Lewis kind of level, right? You get your brief and you do it and it's gone and it's it's quick and, and your investment in that is it's actually relatively small. Um, whereas your own garden, it's long and it's time consuming. You can't do it all at once, you can't afford to do it all at once, and you get things wrong and it evolves. So that's been quite eye-opening for me. <laughs> I've decided to lean into it that that I can't finish it. Uh, and that's actually how I think about a home. A home is like is made and and constantly created and you curate it together as a family and you negotiate what you want it to feel like so you can't get it right straight away yeah it's nice not to ever be striving for that day where you say this is finished god what a horrible feeling that would be to a gardener to suddenly think right finished talking of television and show gardens and the rhs could you tell me a bit about being a horticultural <laughs> researcher and runner <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it was. I did one series. It's actually like a fantastic job being a runner, specifically. It's kind of like not the lowest job you can do, but you know, what I'm trying to say it's like you're the person that runs around, obviously, doing everything for everybody. It means that you go on every shoot that you can, that time allows. I quite often went to Monty Dunn's, which was amazing. And spending like a whole day there just behind the scenes and you're looking after the people that are running things, the cameramen and getting cups of tea and stuff like that. But you just learn so much because you're just standing, listening to people talking about plants all day. If I wasn't going that down the design route and wasn't so eager to to carry on the design journey, I might have stayed longer. You know, it's lovely meeting all of the presenters are just like they're just so lovely. Oh, good. I'm very pleased to hear that. They all come across <laughs> as so nice. How many people would be on a on a shoot? So you get like cameraman, soundy, you get the director and me <laughs> or someone like me <laughs> going there, sometimes like a researcher. There, there's like a specific team that goes to Monty's, whereas there'll be like various different teams that go to to different people's houses or go to botanical gardens and things like that. So, yeah, maybe like four or five don't want it to be too intimidating. <laughs> I'd also like to know a little bit about the Cornell programme, because that's yeah. something that I've never heard of. I didn't know it existed. So it was kind of revised. Um, Cornell's, it's called the MPS, Master's in Professional Studies in Public Garden Leadership. And so it is a one-year master's degree. And essentially it's nonprofit management you're studying with a emphasis and focus on public gardens. So you're learning about interpretation, you're learning about finance as far as uh, nonprofit finance goes. You learn about grant right to grant writing courses, a little bit more administrative in a way. It's not so much as horticulture focused, but it's more about what goes into running a public garden and the aspects of nonprofit management. It's a really great program. My advisors, they were brilliant. Dr. Sonia Skelly and Dr. Don Rocco, they're brilliant. They were so supportive of me and helping me find work after I finished. And yeah, it's a one-year program. Typically, again, it's open for people who have already had professional careers in horticulture who are just looking to advance them. My motivation for taking this was I knew I no longer wanted to just do physical gardening. I really wanted to transition into a role in education, which is what I do now almost exclusively. I think that's wonderful. I think that's a program that we could benefit from, well, anyone could benefit from. Certainly the pattern in the UK seems to be that you get a gardener and they work up through the palm houses and propagation units. And suddenly they are a head gardener in a public mm -hmm. institution. And then they're told, well, can you write a, a heritage funding bid? Yeah, that makes complete sense. It's, it's an obstacle for sure. What did you end up doing as your, say, final project? 
So for my capstone project thesis, I um, did a research project on plant sociability metrics. In particular, I focused on perennial plants. There are kind of systems outlined by German thinkers and British thought uh, professors and Grimes, the CSR triangle. And it's this idea of how plants naturally um, coexist in in cohabitat space. And the idea was that, can we use these metrics that are outlined by philosophies and horticulture and can we benefit them? Are they reliable? And so I did interviews with many people in Europe, in America, Cassine Schmidt and many others included about the reliability of metrics for guiding us when we're designing perennial gardens. It's an interesting concept. And I left the, my published thesis on my website so anyone can read it and download it well do you give us the address yeah so um the website is on wix.com if you google wix.com wyth and willow and my name is brandon george you'll find it on there and i think it'll say plant sociability metrics capstone project and if you click on it there's a download link so it's free to download and check it out i'll put a link to your website underneath we spent like a lot of time looking for beautiful gardens sometimes on social media um ad volley richmond who who is the garden historian on there at the moment i did the initial sort of shoot with her when we first met her and we met her in her garden or people you know people might have visited a garden been like we have to go there i went to Carehays castle in cornwall and and in spring and I'd, i've always liked magnolias but you just don't realise how amazing it is until you go somewhere like that. And maybe even you can't catch it completely on TV. You know, when you try and catch something on a camera that looks really beautiful, it actually isn't the same as when you see it in real life. When you see somewhere on the TV, you've got to go there. That's what I feel. That's a really that's a really useful, useful tip. Are there any days that you found you couldn't capture the place? It was always good. The times when it was more difficult was when it was hammering with rain. <laughs> There's a lot that TV can do, but when somebody's super soggy and hiding underneath a, an umbrella, that does make things slightly more difficult. I actually studied photography at, at college. So using that, and it's funny because once, once you've worked in television, if you follow some of the cameramen around, you, you sort of see what they're trying to capture. And then it was quite nice going around and being like, oh, I've just seen this thing around the corner in it. I think that would make a really good shot. And then afterwards, you're sort of like always in that mindset. You're like walking around like, oh, that's a really good shot. And you're not even at work anymore. <laughs> you're just like still in work mode. Do you find yourself now doing that to landscapes and gardens you pass, seeing a garden and saying, yeah, but I just straighten that and curve that and put a little bench there? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's just, I think that's natural when you're doing it every day. Instagram for me is, it provides a lot of inspiration, but quite often I'm shaking my head. <laughs> oh dear (laughs) that's not allowed there are rules (laughs) what were you up to in the uk yeah 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 so i moved there to be with my ex-partner i moved there to be with him so i have to say i credit the uk being in the uk with the birth of my career in horticulture because prior to that i'd only worked at a guard center for about nine months and so when i moved to england i was fortunate to get a job as a seasonal worker at a garden center called Squires. It's in London. Um, I worked at the Twickingham office 
And then I eventually, someone left the plant area. So I got a full-time job and I was in charge of ordering the tree shrubs and vines. And so that was like my education in botanical names because ordering all the time, just seeing botanical names and not common names, you, I quickly had to learn what was what, and uh, that helped me immensely. And I think I just, and this is so cliche to say, but the level of horticulture found in England is unmatched. Like anything I've ever seen, I've been in many countries and parts of the US and this is the level of interest by the British public and horticulture is such an amazing thing. And the gardens in London, I would explore like the Hampstead Heath Pergola Garden, Regent's Canal, Regent's Park, Battersea Park. It's like the horticulture capital of the world. There's a place in my garden between the middle deck and the bottom garden where I can sit on a step up against the wall there, which has got a climacanthus on it. No one can see me. You can't see me from the river, other side of the river. You can't see me from the house. No one knows you're there. It's really pleasant. And you can just go and sit there and look at your garden. And it's it's weirdly warm down there. No wind can get in because of the, the hedges. And it's where the sun comes in. It's beautiful. It takes a long time to get to know your garden as a person. Um, that makes sense. They have a personality, at least. You begin to know their their different parts of them and how they're going to behave in, at certain times of the year and, and where you want to be at certain times. Yes, exactly. And you are in the privileged position when you live with a garden to see its full personality. I always think it's a shame that us professional gardeners, our working days would be 7.30 a.m. till 4 p.m. Mm. But actually, a summer garden really comes to live at 5.30 and is at its best until 10 o'clock as the light fades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you don't see that as a professional gardener. It's very hard to work with that in mind. When you live in a place, you have that dawn with a cup of tea and that dusk with a glass of wine appreciation of it. Yeah, and go go and take photos of the mayflies when they come out in the nature. It must be gorgeous having the river there for your daughters as well to see the, the wildlife it brings. They just, that's all they've really known. Oh, it's just a swan passing by. Oh, our ducks with 10 ducklings just walking up at the bottom of the garden. Do you have a garden where you are at the moment? Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. And what's that? What are you doing with yours? Um, Very little. <laughs> I know, it's pretty bad. So I think it's a bit like when you're a builder. So my dad was a builder and he renovated our house. He built it from a... Um, a cow barn and he never finished it and so my garden is a bit like that <laughs> it's just quite hard to start on something because I'm so busy doing everybody else's garden so mine is not a good example of what I would want things to look like it's a, a place for our dog Nelly <laughs> most of the time it's got a beautiful willow tree in it which was why we bought the house actually the house was an absolute mess but when we went into the garden I was like this is the one because it's got a massive garden with a big tree and but it's funny because when we have it um maintained when we get the tree surgeons in they give it like a really sharp haircut underneath like they give it like a bob haircut but it's amazing as it goes through the seasons um yeah the leaves start to to change and fall off but obviously with the amount well in the UK it, and I know it's probably similar where where you are it's been like 18 degrees and 19 degrees over the last couple of days so it's um it's still very green everything's still very green here nothing's changing it's it's very strange here. Actually, we got the wind arrived today, which I think now we'll be here for four or five months. So oh, right. <laughs> talking of haircuts, the days of hair looking nice are over. <laughs> Everyone suddenly bought their regulation. They got a, a 
very trendy Nordic brand of woolly hat. I can't remember what it is. Oh. My wife's got three versions of it, but I have never looked at the label. But if they all <laughs> come on en masse, because the Danes are lovely people, but they tend to do things all at the same time. Oh, really? And now, oh, now we're all changing to our winter outfit. And then you see these hats have just appeared <laughs> on every head, which is nice. Again, it's like the falling of the leaves. It's that cyclical thing. I'm determined for it to be cold. I keep going out in like big woolly jumpers and I mean, I'm wearing one now and, you know, a hat and scarf. And then I get out and it's really hot, <laughs> but I'm determined. I'll keep wearing cold clothes until it becomes cold. You know, one of the biggest things I learned about what I think unites and why there's more of a, a kind of community focus and feeling of horticulture in the UK is that by and large, the climate of the UK is pretty similar throughout. And therefore throughout the entire country, almost you can primarily grow most of the same plants. Whereas because of the geography of the US is so vast and different in different states and places, we're so much more regional focused based on states because we can't relate to people growing succulents and desert cacti in Arizona compared to someone in Pennsylvania, where I'm from, growing temperate plants. So we, by and large, don't kind of have that shared culture. And we can never have something like the RHS because, you know, we would be teaching such different things across the United States. It just won't work. You're almost certainly right. Because we have this fairly homogenous climate, we can have things like a national newspaper has a gardening section. All of them do. We have a national gardening program that we we talk about. I often would think to myself, why can't we have gardeners world? But then I'm like, of course, because otherwise we'd have to have 10 different versions because we wouldn't be able to relate to most of the gardens if it was a national show. It just, it couldn't work. And again, that's a tribute to your geography and how that plays into what you can do. It's a really, really interesting point. But by the way, you do have amazing garden shows. Ours are pretty terrible. They're pretty much just sponsors for big box companies to sell their products. And there's so little horticulture, but there's some good ones on PBS, I got to say. So I don't want to like discredit all of them, but most of the ones on like HGTV, they're pretty tragic in my opinion. (laughs) We have an awful lot of fairly rubbishy programs as well. They just don't make it over the Atlantic. I think you get calm old Monty doing his stuff. I actually ended up after college, I, I ended up professionally training as a chef I was always trying to source local um, and we get like amazing bags of locally grown salad with edible flowers and things like that micro herbs and things like that so that's how my plant you know obsession sort of started was from a food point of view where were you chefing so it started off in it in the village pub where because my mum's actually a chef as well and then went to Rick Steins down in Padstow and worked there for a couple of years in the in the seafood school. I was an assistant lecturer there. Gosh, what a career you've had. <laughs> no, varied. <laughs> I was actually thinking the other day that I feel that I'm re- I really am doing the job that I'm meant to do now. I feel like everything that I've done so far has contributed to now working in this job. What a lovely and enviable feeling. <laughs> Tell, tell me out of interest, what's the music festival? So I own 2000 Trees Rock Festival um, just outside Cheltenham. And I also work for another festival called Art Tangent, which is um, in the Mendip Hills, south of Bath, um, which is more tech metal and progressive metal and all kind of left field craziness. Music festivals are endlessly interesting. So they are unbelievably complex. And you only get to do them once a year. So your learning curve is super slow. Maybe that ties in well with the gardening 
or a seasonal mentality is that you get one go at it this spring, you mess it up, then you have to just suck it up and wait. It's been a nice learning curve for me because I guess there's a sense that you stop. You feel like you might set, stop learning at one point. Um, that's not really the case. It's never going to happen. I, I also think that it's not about just about learning. It's about your tastes, which in horticulture and music change over your lifetime. And actually, I have a problem that I've noticed with my wife and her view of the garden and my view of the garden. And it's the same as when someone you know gets really into a fairly obscure genre of music and then really, really into that genre. And then suddenly they've gone down this sort of minimal tech rabbit hole until you yeah. ask them what they're listening to. And it makes no sense to you at all because they've journeyed there through these strange stages. And I'm sort of in danger of going that way in horticulture, but I want to see a bit of decay in the garden. I want to see that time is parting. I like plants that are a little bit raggedy, and then I like them more naturalistic. And then suddenly I'm appreciating really wonky, half-broken things. And the people who haven't been on the journey with me don't see it that way. They just think, what on earth is he doing? So that's something that I've noticed in myself. That is just, Ben, that is, that is just like... Um... What you've just described, I think, is exactly like the path that me and the guys that I work with music festivals have gone on, particularly with Arc Tangent, the more left field one. There's a band called Opeth, right? So they're a Swedish band. Do you know Opeth? Yeah, I do. I do. A, pro a prog metal band, I guess. I don't, genres, that's good enough for your listeners, I reckon. And people say to me, how, how is screaming? How can you get to that? And I'm like, I didn't like wake up one morning at three and start listening to that. I listened to, I don't know, Bon Jovi. And then I listened to this band are a bit heavier than them and then a bit heavier than them. So actually what I spend a lot of my time doing is just searching for the band that blows my head off. It just gets harder and harder and harder. There's a band called Scalping, which doesn't, they don't sound very nice. They're playing Art Tangent. They're essentially a fusion of sort of dance music and rock music. I was listening to Metallica and and I hated dance. That was a thing, right? Because you had to have these dichotomies of you like this or you like this. And then you come all the way full circle and I'm back to the thing I hated. It's weird. You have this kind of sense of allowing yourself to just experience things. I suspect, Ben, that I'll end up doing my garden and then over time changing it and taking the things out as I as you develop and go I'll end up with that lava field with one single rock I look forward to that well the next time I interview you and we can talk about your your pyroclastic flow yeah but if I was to be really authentic I would actually have to get have, I would have to get a volcano to do the pyroclastic flow wouldn't I actually you couldn't just like fake it I can imagine reading a, a feature how I spend my day with a very well-known designer saying, well, I source my pyroclastic flows from a certain glacial hillside in blah, blah, blah. There's one um, I was reading the other day. It was at Terence Comram, the designer, mm. and it was how he spent his days. And it's all, uh, I woke up on the terrace in a place in Venice, and then I, I flew to a little oystery we own in South France where I've been trying to grow a square oyster for the last 14 years. This is literally what he's been doing. Um, we've managed to grow six of them, but God, they're delicious. You think, my goodness, this is <laughs> this has all gone rather niche. Well, the Conran, they use this phrase called transitional. I don't know whether they use it in the horticulture. It's all transitional, which basically means nothing. It means everything and nothing. It's the move from one thing to another, right? It depends on where your perspective is. 
we want a transitional. I just wondered whether you have those kind of terminologies that people use in, in your industry, which kind of means something, but only if you understand where they're coming from. I'm sure we have a huge amount of them, particularly at the, the high-end landscape architecture, the sort of great wave of liminal, which is sweeping the, the world of criticism. Ooh, what, what does liminal mean? Liminal is a between space. So I first came across it when I was studying medieval history, and a liminal space might be a land like a tomb, a barrow. It's between mm. the land of the living and the land of the dead where myths and things can happen. But mm. a liminal space literally could be your hallway. It is the liminal space between your bedroom and the bathroom. So it's a way of saying transitional, but in more of a spatial sense. So, oh, great. So, I'm totally going to use that when I'm teaching next Monday and pretend that it's my word that I knew all along. You can have that liminal and I will get transitional into the next, the next episode somewhere. Look out for it. I mean, it was a great experience learning there anyway. In your lunchtime, you could just go and wander around the botanical gardens and have your lunch there, which was just, you know, pretty dreamy, really. Just in terms of learning names of plants as your homework, you have to learn like a few Latin weeks. So now I have no idea about if someone says like the common name for something, I'm like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> and it might sound, I don't know, not arrogance, not the right word, but a bit pretentious being like, oh, no, I only know the Latin name but I can't help it. That's just, that's just the way I learned. <laughs> You're like one of those insufferable people. See, Paris. Oh, Paris. Paris. Okay. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> No, of course you're not. Of course you're not. It's a very useful skill to have. And when you find yourself working abroad, when they're commissioning you in Japan, you will be able to communicate with all of your contractors because you'll know their Latin names. Talking of your future commissions in Japan, are you mainly working... <laughs> Are you mainly in the West Country at the moment or do you design all over? My client base is really the Southwest. I get quite a lot of work in Wales, actually. Maybe there's just not a huge amount of designers in Wales. I don't really like driving further than an hour and a half somewhere. That's sort of my perimeter. What are you doing this afternoon? What's the workload? Yeah, I'm actually going down to Burnham-on-Sea and I am spending the afternoon in boots with a spade. So it's a curvilinear design. The build started yesterday. So we spent some time setting it out, which was, it's always quite fun. And today is actually digging out the different areas for the different planting beds and things like that. So I do put my wellies on sometimes. Well, Brendan, thank you so much for talking. We got so much out of that conversation. Yes, I appreciate you having me. I really love talking about horticulture and it's always a great time. Well, I'll say bye-bye, Apollo, and I'll say <laughs> bye-bye, Brendan. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Well, it's been really, it's been really, really lovely talking to you, Rob. Ben, I would literally, I would talk to you all day about my garden. I'd be perfectly happy. So when you're bored, I've got loads of editing and stuff to do, but you know, when you're bored, just give me a call. We will resume. We will resume. Well, it sounds like you'll be back on at some point in the future then. That's I'd great. love to. I'd love to, Ben. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, thank you so much for talking. You're the first garden designer, full-time garden designer that we've talked to. I think it's going to be really interesting for the listeners. 
Oh, good. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's been really lovely to speak to you as well. And yeah, looking forward to hearing the various different horticultural people you're going to be speaking to. Yes, I don't quite know who we're going to get. I think we might have a um furniture designer turned gardener turned metal music promoter who's Amazing. very interesting. And then I haven't decided. I, I don't know who else you'll be on with, but it'll be someone. <laughs> it will be someone lovely and interesting. <laughs> <laughs> they all are. <laughs> they all are. It's amazing, isn't it? Just how nice and interesting people are in this world. There's so yeah. many. The horticulture world attracts a very lovely crowd. It really does. It really does. Good. Well, have a wonderful time in Burnham and Sea. Thank you. And I'll see you at some future show where yeah, you're receiving your, your gold medal. Oh, <laughs> that might be a while, but <laughs> yeah, I'll see you soon. Brilliant. <laughs> Lovely to speak to you. Lovely to talk to you. Bye-bye. Right, bye. Thank you very, very much to our dear gardeners. A wonderful group of people with wonderful dogs. We didn't meet Rob's dog, but there was an allusion to Rob's dog. He mentioned in a piece that I unfortunately cut out, I don't know why, because it's right up my alley, he mentioned that he walks his dog with a religious iconographer who told him as they wandered behind their hounds that simplicity is complexity resolved. It's a phrase nicely illustrated by the view from the window to my left now. We have a blanket of snow, the first of the season here in Copenhagen. It's early and it's very cold, cruelly cold, having come so close on the heels of that unprecedented mild snap. But all of the fluff and fizz and distraction in the garden, the complexity, has gone. And now we just have lines. We have fence lines. We have the lines of the tree branches, which are somehow more obvious in the snow. They have that highlighting band of white down the middle and black, black at the edge and the bottom. Everything's gone back to being shapes. As a horticulturalist, I've lost my superpowers because I can't tell what's what out there now. I am now at the mercy of more design-minded people, people like Rob and Charlotte who can look at a space and know if its composite pieces, its composite curves work together. I expect that Brandon is equally as good at garden design. He does seem to be one of those people with talents in every direction. Which just leaves me sitting here trying to puzzle out why things look nice one way and not the other. I did see something very, very nice yesterday. We went down to Gisselfeld Kloster, a renaissance moated manor house south of Copenhagen, and saw it sitting under the first true clear cold blue skies of winter with that wonderful sideways light that comes at three o'clock in the afternoon at this time of year, hitting the red brick and sending it into autumn flame. It was glorious. One of those brief, brief days that makes the long, long nights almost worthwhile. I'm going to put a picture of that up on Instagram so you can see that if you go to Ben underscore dark underscore on that platform, you can also find me on Twitter at Ben's Garden. And if you would like to email me about the program, then please do use the old garden log email address. That is thegardenlogpodcast at gmail.com. No pressure. If I don't hear from you on the email, I'll just expect to find you here again next week for the next episode of Dear Gardener. Thank you very much and goodbye. Times are getting tough and the folks are cutting down. 
They even decided to do their own gardening. Their own gardening. Take my advice and knock off for a while. The happiness boys are on a rampage. Fred has helped me to start a small Pelagonia nursery, yes? Better 